when you listen and see what the impact has been and what they've been able to do that lasts with you for a very long time and reinforces the the approach itself and then seeing the partner and developing it and being fearless with it and truly being unafraid to hand the power to the communities Hello, and welcome to the Evidence for Development podcast, where we explore methods and evidence developed and used in the Global South to shape policy and improve lives. If you're interested in research, knowledge exchange and learning related to international development, then this podcast is for you. I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray, your host. Today, we're talking to Alicia Malouf, Program Manager for Christian AIDS programs in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory and May Gerard, Director of the Women's Development Programme for the East Jerusalem YMCA, a worldwide youth charity. During this episode, we'll find out more about an approach called participatory, vulnerability and capacity assessment. It's quite a mouthful, so we'll be calling it PVCA for short from now on. Christian Aid has worked with the poorest and most vulnerable people in the Middle East, since the early 1950s and is working for a just and lasting peace in the region. We support partners, including the YMCA, to challenge discriminatory laws, practices and decisions affecting Palestinians living under occupation in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory, which includes Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Alicia, could you tell us how Christian Aid supports our partners in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory? Yes, uh, so we work with uh, partners uh, across Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory, that includes uh, Gaza, West Bank and East Jerusalem, um, with the main aim of, uh, well, there are two main aims. One is on accountability, governance and human rights. Uh, so that is very much on the kind of uh, advocacy as well, advocacy levels and the legal level. And then we also work with partners uh, who work more on the kind of um, with the communities uh, on the ground level, on the resilience and um, de- development, what we would call development, I guess, Um but uh, that would be very much with community-led approaches. And under that, we would include uh, humanitarian relief as and when is needed, which is unfortunately very often uh, in, in Gaza. Great, thanks. May, could you give us a short overview of the work the YMCA does in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory? Yeah, I am going to talk about the Women's Development Program. Uh, Women's Development Program started in 1993, actually. And um, the main goal of the program is that men and uh, women participate on equal terms to realize their economic social, cultural uh, rights. Based on that, we concentrate on two, three objectives. First one is is women uh, are agents of change. The second is uh, access to resources. And the third one is uh, helping women to access their legal rights. This is briefly the Women's Development Programme. 
Alicia, what is the participatory vulnerability and capacity assessment approach? And what was ChristianAid's role in having it introduced within the region? Uh, So what is it? It is a tool or a process that takes a community through... um, through a journey of looking at uh, their own um, capacities, their own vulnerabilities, and uh, kind of their own uh, their own abilities um, to identify their needs, the needs of their community, and then to decide on how they would want to address each of these needs, prioritize them as a community together, and then decide on how they want to address these needs. So it is very much... Um, in response, uh, not just to humanitarian, but development uh, programming. But it is so holistic that because the community, it is quite an organic process, will come out with all sorts of needs and strengths. And that includes things under livelihoods, things under climate change, things under social cohesion, things that could respond to more immediate needs and things that could respond to more kind of long term needs. Uh, but it very much puts the power in the hands of the community. So Christian Aid uh, trained the partners. It was before my time, that was around 2013. And then the partners themselves uh, went into the communities to implement this, this tool. As a bit of background, there is some evidence supporting the effectiveness of the PVCA as an approach. According to Christian Aid's Good Practice Guide, The PVCA approach was piloted in its disaster risk reduction work in Honduras, Bangladesh and Malawi, and an external evaluation of that work strongly recommended that we should use the approach in all our livelihood, development and poverty reduction work. A separate Christian Aid learning review from 2017 found the PVCA approach helped 80 communities secure resources for themselves developing their own funding, resources, and services from the state, private sector, or donors. These seem like really interesting and important findings, and we can't wait to dig into the detail of what this approach is. We'll also include a link to the research I just mentioned in the podcast notes. Alicia, how does this relate more widely to Christian Aid's approach of working with local partners? For us, uh, we see ourselves is very much partner-led by design and the partners are community-led. So this is why the PVCA uh, fits in so well and works, um, you know, is a kind of natural uh, fit for, for the program because it is the community that decides what they want to be doing and uh, how they want you to be supporting. Uh, we're just uh, facilitating or giving them a process or a tool and the, uh, facilitating that journey, but it is really the community itself self that is in the front seat. May, I was wondering if you could outline how the YMCA uses the participatory vulnerability and capacity assessment approach in its work? Okay, uh, as uh, Alicia said, this is uh, the participatory vulnerability capacity assessment is a tool where we help the community to analyze, anticipate, design and respond. In this way, the power is transferred to the community and they are in the driving seat. Our role, consequently, is changed from implementers to facilitators. We only facilitate the work with the community and we do not implement on their behalf. 
We, we go through uh, different steps with the community. Uh, the, uh, the first, the introduction. We introduce ourselves. We introduced the approach to the community. We made sure that all the community members are present. It took, uh, sometimes it takes us uh, several meetings to make sure that everyone is represented in, the, in those meetings so they understand who we are, what we are going to do, who our partners and international partners who are our donors. And in those meetings, also, we manage their expectations because there is a difference between the traditional way and this approach. We do not dis- give services or distribute any in-kind uh, or cash um, for individuals. So people should understand what we are doing and why we are doing it. Then uh, after those meetings, we ask the communities that we need a group of volunteers to work with us. And because the work includes everyone, all societal groups in the communities, we make sure that in this protection group that representing the community, all societal groups are included, such as men, women, youth, uh, elderly, uh, housewives, uh, employed, unemployed, farmers. It depends on each community and the specific context there. Uh, So the societal groups uh, that are there. So usually we have nominated a protection group or or elected. Community will elect a protection group, but it should represent all those groups in the community. And usually we have from 10 to 20 volunteers come, uh, which consist of the protection group who work with us. Those group, This group, uh, we train them on the tool, the PVCA tool. Uh, and, uh, and this PVCA tool consists of uh, several activities, um, including terminology, uh, like what is vulnerability, what is a risk, what is a hazard. So these terminologies are are uh, defined by the community so we can come to a unified un- uh, understanding with the community. Then we ask them to map their communities by drawing and all the resources that are in their communities uh, or vulnerabilities or capacities, they are put in the, uh, on that map. So they map the mosque, the houses, the lands, the uh, water resources, uh, the streets, the main streets, or the electricity, everything. They have the the, the infrastructure things, the capacities, all the capacities they have. Then we ask them to highlight if they consider these as vulnerability or uh, as a capacity. Um, if it is a capacity, for instance, I can give an example. A mosque could be a capacity or a vulnerability to some to other community. A capacity, it's a meeting point and a place where they can disseminate information and announce for certain activities. For other communities, it might be a vulnerability as the mosque is the place where uh, they breach against women role. So these are the issues they start to discuss and to talk about it w- when doing this activity. Then we have a problem tree activity where they analyze all the, uh, the risks and the vulnerabilities they have highlighted in the uh, mapping and they analyze that, see the root causes, how it's affected the community, etc. So they work all of this together. And then we have another activity, for instance, like the seasonal map, where they analyze what they do according to their livelihoods or, uh, or, or um, 
what, what, is it a season with diseases for the sheep or the, uh, the their livelihoods? If it's uh, uh, farming, etc., or they have weddings or graduation ceremonies, etc. What do they do? How they spend the the money on the uh, the uh, those seasons? How they gain money on those seasons? So they have more in the understanding of their livelihoods. What's going on? And also, they know when they have free times, when they can respond, uh, or they prepared for certain threats, like if they have a flood, uh, or they have uh, storms, etc. I think you made a really important point when you were talking about mapping the risks and vulnerabilities. And you mentioned, as an example, the mosque and the community, and how that could be seen either as a risk or a vulnerability. I was just wondering if you could unpick that a bit more in terms of perhaps different members of the community seeing uh, assets or, or places, perhaps in different ways, depending on who they are. Yeah. Uh, for instance, you know, the uh, school students, you know, that the school for them is a, a capacity. Yeah. Because this is the where they go and learn. When a school is very close to a settlement, it's also a vulnerability because they have settlers attacks uh, on that school. So there is a risk of, uh, for the students. So, um, in the action plans, you will see in the under political risks that they at the school, so maybe they want to uh, have a higher fence so to protect the students. Uh, another example is from the farmers. When you have the farmers and they have their, uh, who have uh, depend a lot on the land uh, and they, the land is a capacity because it's their own livelihoods, but at the same time, it's a vulnerability because there is a problem problem of water because we do not control the water resources uh, usually and they are in uh, most of the lands are in area C. I will explain area C in a, in a bit. Those lands also, if they do not use those lands, they will be um, a victim for confiscation from the Israeli occupation. So this is both a threat and a capacity, a capacity in terms of livelihood and a threat from the Israeli side for uh, of confiscation or uprooting their lands or etc., cetera, uh, their trees or their plants. So this is how they highlight these, uh, the, these issues as capacity or a vulnerability. Sometimes if they have a main road and a main entrance, it's a capacity because it connects them to the main cities or to the nearby villages. But at the same time, if there is a checkpoint on that road and it's the only road, then it's a vulnerability to them because they will not be able to leave or to enter the village or they have a problem for uh, freedom of movement. So they, some of the community started to think about other roads that connects them to other nearby villages. So it depends on the situation and how uh, the village, uh, where it's geographically located, and if it's surrounded by settlements or there are threats of bypass roads or checkpoints, etc. You had mentioned um, Area C when you were just explaining there um, a little bit more about the risks and vulnerabilities. I wonder if you could just uh, follow up by by explaining what you mean by that that term. 
I, after Oslo, an agreement between Palestinians and Israelis, the agreement was to divide the Palestinian area, the, the occupied Palestinian territory, to three areas, A, B, and C. Area A is under the administrative and the security control. I, I can't say complete security. Uh, it's police of uh, Palestinians. Area B is shared uh, administration and the security. And area C is completely under Israeli authority. But the facts on the ground that all the occupied Palestinian uh, territory is under Israeli occupation, but this is what makes area C more vulnerable that Within those agreements, yani for instance, uh, Palestinian police can't go to uh, Area C unless it's uh, there is uh, some coordination with the Israelis, and usually they can't. Uh, they can't access. The civil defense also can't access Area C. So those are the areas where we concentrate our work. Uh, and it's good to mention that part of Area B, um, or most of Area B, that People reside in Area B, but all their lands and livelihoods are in Area C, not in Area B. So you find the residential area is Area B, but the land, water resources, etc., the main roads are located in Area C, which is completely under Israeli occupation. I think that just explains, obviously, the, the huge difficulties and vulnerabilities very clearly to listeners. So thank you for that. I was wondering, May, could you share a practical example of how a community has used the participatory vulnerability and capacity assessment approach to improve their lives? Uh, I can bring an example from Rabud village. Rabud is a village near in Hebron, governorate. In Rabud, they have um, in their action plan uh, the main risk and the priority for the whole community was a sewage torrent that crossed the village, not only Rabud village, but also the villages nearby. May is referring here to an open channel carrying sewage from the city of Hebron. Villagers need to cross this channel, which runs between the residential area of their village and their farmland to cultivate their crops. And this was the main uh, risk, the main environmental risk to all the village, because, you know, in addition to the smell, it's open and it causes a lot of diseases to the whole community. So it was is their first priority and they started to work on this with the Ministry of Local Governance because they know exactly, they wanted to know exactly how to work on that. But they find out that it will cost millions of dollars and it is not uh, within our capacity or their capacity or even the Palestinian authorities' capacity. So they started to find other solutions with discussion with some experts. They find the best way is to do some uh, uh, culvert to help them to at least approach their own lands. May told us that the community applied to the YMCA for a community cash grant. This helped them fund work to build a culvert to access their farmlands more easily and safely. When the municipality of Hebron saw how successful the first infrastructure project to build the culvert was, it provided funding to the Communities Protection Committee to build a second one. 
And so they now have two places where they can uh, cross and reach their lands. And one of the communities also in Hebron, uh, and it's called Mnezel, and they were not uh, connected to uh, electricity network. So this was the priority of the whole community. You can talk to a man, a woman, a farmer, or a child, um, and ask them about their priorities. The only thing they talk about is electricity. They want electricity, and this is the only thing they want. And uh, so what we have done is a very not complicated advocacy uh, campaign with them. We set together, analyze who are the duty bearers that should be included on that. And we put a small plan, including using the media, the community, of course, to use the media and to go and do some demonstration on I mean, the various ministries and to the prime minister office and the cabinet. And they started that campaign on that, uh, on the radios. May told us that the community put in an application for a generator to provide electricity 14 years earlier, and we're still waiting. Trained by the YMCA on communications and advocacy approaches, they started lobbying the government outside cabinet meetings until they were promised a generator. Just when they thought they'd succeeded, they were told there were no generators available, but their own investigations revealed there was one in the government stores. After further advocacy, they were finally given a generator. Nizal now has electricity, proof surely that community-led advocacy does work. So it was a great achievement to the protection group and actually to the VBCA approach. It's not about how much money, it's about how you do things, how you approach the right people and the right duty bearers, and you can achieve a lot more even that we we anticipated as an organization. Fascinating. Thank you very much. May, you've said the PVCA has changed the way women are perceived in their community. Could you explain how this approach has improved the lives of women? This is a journey of change, and this is what's important about this approach. It's different. We are not doing certain activities and leave. No, the power is in the community, and they will go through a journey, which is very important to everyone in the community, and mainly women. Women have changed a lot. Actually, we find out that women are more trusted in their communities than men. When we give the check, for instance, more than 90% of the cases, women are elected to receive the check. They, uh, women can also think in a very uh, comprehensive way. Usually men think only uh, on their um, livelihoods. Like, for instance, if they are farmers and they have herds, they, uh, on, the only thing they talk about is that support us and bring us fodder. And the approach is not about distributing fodder at all. But when women talk, they see the full picture. They talk about the roads, they talk about water resources, they talk about electricity, they talk about uh, schools, um, to classrooms, they talk about um, water resources, they talk about access to lands, so they talk about everyone's needs. And through this process, women bargaining power actually increased and they start 
to know exactly how to talk and negotiate with men. And this is amazing difference. A woman uh, perspective about themselves and the, the, about how men think about women also change. It changed dramatically because women change their role by practice. They have now their voices in the public sphere. They talk, they go out of their houses. I remember one woman from Gaza, they said this approach have brought women out of their homes. And this is very important because the traditional role of women is to do the house chores. But now they are leaving their houses and are active in the public spheres. And they are talking about real issues for the whole community. And this is really very important. One addition also is that women are encouraged by the protection group to nominate themselves to be elected in the village councils. And now from out of 10 women, now we have uh, four women who are elected in the village council and supported by the protection group and their communities because they learned that they should improve their communities by being part of the decision decision maker and we never talk about women going to be uh, elected or gender issues we never talk about these issues with women but this really uh, a journey of change that have changed a lot of power dynamics uh, in the community one of uh, very important changes also that happened uh, actually women who faces uh, gender based violence started to refer to women in protection groups to help them and and in some communities, this is a taboo. Women do not talk about these issues. But now they are going, uh, talking to other women and sometimes to our staff. And this is really a great uh, step for women to start talking about these issues and to find someone to refer to. You've mentioned that this work has also been a way to connect fragmented partners because of the way, um, obviously, communities are fragmented geographically into these different areas, area A, B, and C that you spoke about earlier. These communities are often fragmented, so they're, they're geographically close but separate. I was wondering if you could talk about how this approach has helped groups come together and form coalitions. One of the things that when we bring communities in the last month, the communities together in one room, we have people from Jerusalem areas, uh, suburbs of Jerusalem, with uh, communities from Hebron. You know, we find out that communities never heard about each other and they figure out the differences between the villages. There are some villages who are, for instance, the women who are struggling to come out of their houses, while in Jerusalem and suburbs, women are, you know, have the freedom uh, to be out of their houses, but they have other problems. They are not motivated to work in the public sphere. And when they are connected, they encouraged each other in different ways, which were amazing, you know, to those communities and to look about how you know, even those women who are struggling, they motivated the other women who have the freedom to be out their houses. The other women started to think if they do not have those communities, they do not have um, water networks and electricity, and they are doing a lot, and we are more privileged, so we can do a lot more to our communities. And they become more active because they learn from those women who are less privileged. 
So there are amazing experiences from exchanging experiences. Also, you know, we have the Gaza Strip, which is a whole other area on its own and very difficult to access. Also, a kind of fragmentation. So communities are not able to access each other. And as you know, you know, we have Palestinians also um, who have been made refugees there in Lebanon. So we now are working with partners in Gaza and in Lebanon uh, who are working with uh, certain communities uh, on these approaches as well. And physically, I mean, luckily, May was uh, has been able to go to Gaza, but it's not as easy for everyone or not. That wasn't even easy, but it's not easy for communities to to kind of speak to each other and see each other face to face. But uh, uh, we're able to use kind of vir- the virtual world to connect um, communities. And it was really uh, amazing to have sa- a community in the West Bank, a Palestinian community in Lebanon, in a refugee camp in Lebanon, and then uh, a Palestinian community in Gaza and all of them uh, talking and um, sharing experience and exchanges. And this is something... Um, Uh, you know, I think it gives um, everybody some kind of moral support, uh, especially when you're so physically fragmented to feel a bit closer uh, mentally, at least, and to have these spaces, even if you cannot be there physically together. Um, so that was just something very powerful that we've observed. Alicia, in, in just a few sentences, can you uh, kind of outline what you feel the impact of this approach has been? Uh, yes, um, it's been on several different levels um, for us. It's been such a learning experience from when it was piloted. So seeing it evolve as well and us learning from the communities and uh, kind of uh, getting that impact back and then seeing actually um, it addresses so much more than we thought it did. So like that social cohesion, all of that stuff was uh, things that were coming up. Uh, also going to the communities and when you listen and see uh, and uh, people explain to you the process and what the impact has been and what they've been able to do, that kind of lasts with you for a very long time and uh, kind of reinforces the the approach itself and then seeing of course the partner uh, be it YMCA or other partners who are taking this approach and uh, developing it and being fearless with it and uh, you know truly being unafraid to hand the power to the communities um, and which you know like like me saying which is the essence of you know which is why why we exist I guess and the uh, Uh, you know, the whole thing about Christian aid being partner-led. Um, so, so yeah, this is, this is it. But I think always hearing uh, the approach being talked about and seeing it in the communities, I invite anyone to come and uh, visit and see it for themselves. May, from your perspective, what do you feel the overall impact of using this approach has been? One of the most important things that it revived volunteerism again, because, you know, the aid in its traditional way have affected volunteerism a lot because people start to be recipients and not active people as we used to be. But within this approach, people started to 
revive volunteerism and start to to participate and to be again active in their communities. The other thing that it does not cost a lot of money actually like other projects. In a way, it costs less, but the impact is much, much more because usually you give some money and people start to participate and contribute in kind and sometimes cash and work to the projects they wanted to do. And also it has encouraged people actually from diaspora to start to look at what the people are doing to their communities and they started to contribute also to uh, these issues. And um, this is on the community level. Actually, they start the ownership of these communities and the sustainability after we leave. I, I can give you an example, um, not only the sustainability, but we in the times of crisis, like the COVID-19, when we have, we were staying at their homes, the internationals and us as organizations, who responded? It's them, the protection group in their communities, they started to design the right responses. So you are talking about ongoing practices, ongoing activities, regardless if we are present or not present there. And also, it helps a lot in community conflicts because now they have a representative uh, protection group from all societal groups. So they help each other and solve their uh, own problems if something arises. They started to look at the real resources they have and contribute with those resources and think about that those resources can be used in a different way. And one amazing uh, impact now, if other donors come to them and they want to deliver some services, they have their action plan and they start to talk and advocate that this is our action plan. If you want to pick something from this action plan, you can. If you don't, please leave. And this will not happen before. They are challenging other international organizations and local organizations and also um, donors that this is not what they want. And one other thing which is important, and these are my messages to international donors, if they are talking about accountability, Nothing happened, no embezzlement, no fraud. They are practicing a way of democracy. It's their own, not ours. So they are accountable to their communities. It's not only upward accountability, it's also downward accountability. In this way, we are talking about development. We are talking about humanitarian, because people are anticipating the risks that they and they are doing the plans and trying to minimize uh, those risks and we are talking about peace building in terms of community peace i'm not talking political peace because there a lot of donors are uh, intrigued by uh, peace in between palestine and israel but this is not the peace i'm talking about i'm talking about peace in the community and between the different societal groups and the men and women and youth together. Brilliant. Um, I'd like to thank you both for taking the time to speak with us today. It's It's been fascinating. Many thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Evidence for Development podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about any of the research we've discussed, please check the episode notes for more information and links. 